From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP podcast. I'm your host, Mazi Dar. You can affect change just by asking questions. Just by asking questions. Have we thought about diversity and equity in that compensation process? How much time is the board scheduling on diversity and inclusion? Is there going to be a metric that I can see in every board meeting? If you just ask that as a board member, the natural apparatus of organizations responding to boards will kick in and things will start changing. That's Paul Walker. He's a technologist, philanthropist, and investor focused on artificial intelligence and financial technology. Paul was previously the co-head of technology at Goldman Sachs, where he spent most of his career. Paul is now a partner at Motive Partners and serves on the boards of OpenFin and Uncork. Paul, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Mazzy. Good to talk to you. Paul, to start off, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got your start in finance. <laughs> sure. Well, so like most people, I was studying black hole physics. That's a joke, of course, but, you know, sort of. There were a bunch of folks in the 90s who made the transition from physics to finance, and I was one of them. And so I'd planned my whole life to be a scientist and found the problems and the challenges and the math and the computations super exciting. And by the time I got to the end of my PhD program, I found that those things were super exciting, but the context in which you did academic physics appealed to me less. And so I looked around for some other things to do. And I didn't particularly have finance in mind. I thought about a supercomputing company, which is no longer operating. I thought about a rocket lab where I knew someone. I was going to go be a rocket scientist. And I knew someone who had gone to J.P. Morgan. And at the time, it was exciting to move to New York City and try my hand at finance and see how that went. And so I left physics and uh, started writing actually very similar computer software in financial services. I was at uh, JP for about 30 months or so until they merged with Chase. And then a bunch of people moved to Goldman Sachs. And so I went along with them. And I think, you know, the, the things when I take a look at that start that were fortuitous were that I knew someone who had made that transition before at a time when the industry was open to people transitioning from more academic pursuits to more practical pursuits. And the work that was required of me matched well with the skills I'd developed around computation and math. And so that was sort of the beginning of my career in finance. I would say it was not intentional in some ways, right? I didn't grow up always thinking I want to be a swaptions trader. I don't know how many people actually grew up thinking they want to be swaptions traders, but maybe someone does. Uh, instead, I thought, where is there something fun and hard to do? And I sort of fell into an opportunity that worked for me. And so from there, I went about figuring out what does it mean to be a person in finance who does stuff, mostly around technology, computing, risk management, mathematics, analytics, that sort of space. And so when uh, I had the opportunity to move to Goldman, that worked out well because they were at the time and still are experts in that space. And so I had a lot of fun at the beginning of my career at Goldman learning how to do risk management and computation for risk management on an entire sort of securities division scale, which led to a fun run through Goldman Sachs until about 2016 when I retired. Paul, the story that you're telling about how you got your start in finance reminds me of my own accidental start in finance. I remember 
pacing outside the building, SBC Warburg, which was at 222 Broadway at the time, and wondering what they could possibly ask me to do that I would know how to do. And you know, I didn't know anything about finance, and I was really worried about what that job would look and feel like. But once I got into it, the, the problem-solving definitely appealed to me and, and really matched my skill set. And so I stuck with it. I must say, I know very little about black hole theory and didn't, didn't have the option of becoming a rocket scientist. But I'm really intrigued by the kinds of complex topics that you know an awful lot about and have a really terrific way of simplifying and explaining to people. I think that's one of your many gifts that has served you well over the years. Could you talk a little bit about that, the the art of explaining things? And then I'm going to ask you a couple specific questions and ask you to explain those for us in ways that the, the audience will, will grasp easily. Yeah, sure. Well, this sounds like I'm about to get a quiz, which uh, I, I didn't see in the notes coming in, but that's okay. Look, so here's, first of all, it's really difficult to explain things that you don't understand. So if you need to explain something, the first thing to do is pause for a second and say, do I understand what I'm about to explain? Right? And you need to sort of train yourself to start asking basic questions. This would happen a lot when someone would describe a financial product to me and I would ask them, what are the cash flows and when do they pay? Right? Or when someone explains a piece of technology and I say, how does that get installed on the computer? Right? Just basic stuff. Have you, have you got your basics down? Do you have your basics in place? And do you have that mapped into a mental model of how the world works? Right? Can you be, at least inside your head, a little bit predictive about what might happen under certain circumstances? So that's step one. It's kind of hard to explain things well if you don't understand them. And I know it's a little odd to come on a podcast and say, if you want to sound like you know what you're talking about, you should know what you're talking about. But it's not the entire story. I think the other part that's important once you have that, is you need to realize the person you're talking to doesn't necessarily have your mental model of the world, right? That you need to do two things. You need to understand something, and then you need to work to translate it into a context of the person you're communicating with, right? And this is especially difficult with technology, right? This is especially difficult with technology and financial services. We need such and such a network to go to such and such a server, right? Those words may not mean something to someone else. You know, the person you're talking to may not know what a server is, may have at best a loose understanding of how a network works. So you need to start thinking, what is the experience this person has? Have some empathy for their experience and then try to put your ideas into their context. And similarly, you need to listen to their questions in their context, right? This is another thing I think another mistake people make is that when they get a question, they assume that that question is informed in the same mental model as yours. Why do we need Linux if we have XML? You might just dismiss that question as someone not understanding anything, but it's not a case that they don't understand anything. It's just they don't have a context of what an operating system is or what an XML document is. And so when someone asks a question like that, you need to realize that your explanation needs to maybe do a bit more foundational stuff, right? Oh, look, XML is different than Linux. It's kind of like saying, why do I need Microsoft Word if I have a doc file? The two of them are different things that work together. And the reason we need them both is because Linux will work in our servers this way, and XML will allow us to communicate with our clients in a way that we all agree upon, as opposed to sort of a more dismissive tone. 
And look, I think the last thing you need to do, especially in an environment where the experiences are, you know, widely varied as finance, where you might have someone who's an expert on operations or sales or legal, is assume people are smart and good at what they know and acting in good faith, but don't assume they have the same information you do. And so that sort of empathy for the point of view of the others, once you have the coherent mental model, I think that's a super important skill to develop if you want to start explaining stuff. Okay, so we're going to put this to the test with our pop quiz, Paul. Explain black hole theory to us. Go. So start by understanding the force of gravity, which is the thing that attracts you to another object with mass. So it's what keeps us to the Earth. It's what makes planets revolve around each other. And gravity was pretty well understood in the sort of weak gravity form in the time of Newton. That's when we started understanding the orbits of planets and things like that. When gravity gets super strong, it doesn't just move other objects around. It can also begin to move light and electromagnetism. So if you think about it, a very strong hunk of gravity, a very dense piece of material, can actually bend light as the light goes around it. And so what a black hole is, is it's when you take an incredibly dense piece of matter, usually from the collapse of a star or at the center of a galaxy, and it becomes so dense that light bends so much, so much, that if you stood on the surface of it and shone a flashlight out, the light wouldn't be able to get out. The light would get pulled back into the black hole. Now, to give you an idea about how dense that is, if the Earth became a black hole, it'd be about the size of a golf ball. Right. So compress the whole earth into the size of a golf ball and you get about a, a black hole. The sun would be about the size of Central Park, about one and a half kilometers is the radius, the black hole radius of the sun. And so the fundamental thing that happens when gravity gets that strong is lots of weird stuff that we don't see every day starts to occur. There's problems with time, there's problems with light bending, but at the end of the day, you get this very violent reaction of gas infalling or other black holes colliding that end up making observable events. And those observable events are things like x-rays when gas falls into a black hole, or more recently, and this was the work that won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, when two black holes collide, they send out gravitational waves, and a gravitational wave is kind of like a ripple in the background of space-time. So you know, think about light being on the surface of a pond and you throw a rock in, that light would bounce up and down along the pond as the waves spread out in the pond. And a black hole is much like throwing a rock into the pond of all of space, kind of bends it. And so when two of them collide, you get a big splash. That splash is now observable. And that observation, which when I did my thesis, I was actually trying to model what would happen when that happened. That observation was observed, oh, I guess about... Three years ago, we saw that, and then Kip Thorne and a group of other people won the Nobel Prize for that. That is incredibly cool. And I have to say, this is a topic that truly fascinates me. I could spend the rest of this podcast talking to you about nothing other than uh, (laughs) black hole theory. But I I do want to test your explanation uh, abilities on, on one other topic that might be a little bit closer to home for folks in finance. Sure. That is artificial intelligence. There's a lot of stuff out there that people claim is is AI. Not all of it is. But I'd love to hear both how you would define artificial intelligence and, and how do you tell good artificial intelligence from not so good. I heard a very, very senior bank executive once describe the ability to know that somebody's loan had come to maturity and to be able to notify them about kind of the next product that they could buy yes. as artificial intelligence. Sure, right. You mean the, the, the artificial intelligence algorithm known as IF. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, right. So look, that I think that definitional exercise is probably one that's not that useful on your path to understanding AI. And I think AI is a, a label that gets applied to a lot of things, AI, machine learning, data science, big data. You know, these labels, it's kind of like the the cloud of days gone by, right? It's It's not as useful a label as much as understanding what people are actually talking about when they're talking about a project. But I think there's a couple of things that are super important when you go to understand the field that is broadly labeled as AI. First of all, and this is the most important part, our business processes in the last 15 years or so have evolved so that they capture and record almost all of the data about that business process if you do it right. I was doing a, a little talk a little while ago, and I gave the example of think about what we knew in television viewing in 2020, and think about what we know of television viewing in 2000, right? Over the last 20 years, how much difference is there in what we know about television viewing? In the year 2000 in the United States, we had Nielsen boxes on top of your television that did a statistical sample based on when people had their TV on. Now, Netflix knows the second in which you abandon the show and what you go to next and how that can help with their recommendation engine. So even before you do any AI, even before you do anything else, our business processes have evolved to create an amount of data and our technology has evolved to be able to store and scan and process that data. So if you're wondering, am I an AI powered business? The first question to ask yourself is, do I capture all the data about my business or not? Right? Do I leave data on the floor? Do I understand when a client calls and doesn't do a trade? Do I have a database that records who I'm talking to and when and who's buying what? And sort of compare yourself to your mental model of what Amazon knows about your shopping cart. Now, in finance, it's difficult because there's privacy and regulatory concerns that are real, and you need to make sure you obey those. You 100% need to make sure you obey those when you collect your data. But then once you have all that data, I think there's another really important thing to understand about artificial intelligence. And this gets skipped a lot because it's kind of the hard part, which is... Actually, Mazi, you invited me to give this talk. I gave a, a keynote at an event you were sponsoring, and I had a graph about the history of artificial intelligence 1950 to today. And I sort of had 1950 to 2010 labeled as artificial intelligence is five years away from working, and 2012 labeled as artificial intelligence starts to work. Right? Because what happened in the early 2010s and has progressed through the decade is a collection of mathematical advances that have coupled with the increase in compute power that allows us to be much more predictive about data, right? So if we have a set of data, we can start learning the patterns in that data so we can predict where there's meaning, where there's intent, where there might be something happening next. That's what a lot of these machine learning techniques are. Can I come up with a model that will learn a hidden pattern in this data so I can be predictive about the next set of inputs to output maps? And that form of artificial intelligence the first one of, you know, all these people have watched this movie, then watched this movie. Therefore, I will watch these movies and like that movie was uh, some of the first set of uh, predictive AI that really started working. And that's a lot of this. You'll hear people talk about multi-layer neural networks. But if you're not a mathematician and someone talks to you about multi-layer neural networks, ask them to explain the business process they're modeling instead, right? That advance has spread to a variety of other things. Image recognition happened about the same time. In fact, image recognition happened super early. Natural language now is very exciting. There have been some incredible uh, advances in game theory and game processing, but they're all based on the same idea, which is given a set of data and given a way to impute a model about that data, can I find a hidden pattern that allows me to, uh, to do something with it? 
And that kind of gets you to this very different way of programming. And I think it's the third thing to understand about artificial intelligence, which is this very different way of programming, right? To your example of, I can tell you when your loan expired, which is if data is past loan maturity, right? That sort of algorithmic approach of if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that, which is, again, back to my earlier comment, the mental model that many people have in their head about programming isn't the mental model you need for AI. For AI, what you do is you say, I think this is the form of a model that could become predictive about this set of data. And then you show it some of the data and that calibrates a whole bunch of parameters inside it. That sets a whole bunch of numbers. And then you run those numbers on new data and you hope it works. And so now you need to start thinking about things. And this is important for everyone who is dealing with AI. You need to start thinking about things like, is there bias in my training set? Have I made sure that regulatory constraints that may not be in my training set are met by my algorithm? All of those problems start becoming very hard and very important. And so the idea that, you know, AI is some data science that I do. I think that's wrong. I think you need to think AI is some modeling and predictive capability I have on my business process that I need to make sure meets the constraints of my business process. And that requires a communication between your data scientists and your modelers and your business people and your regulatory folks that I think is uh, is uh, increasing every day. And I think it's a very interesting space for the next decade in finance. Paul, I'm going to ask you a loaded question, which is, how important do you think this this ability of yours to explain hard things, like how important has that been in the success you've had in your career? And for folks who are, you know, earlier in that journey, any advice you can give them about what they can do? You, you started by saying, well, you know, be an expert in your subject matter, but then in the explanation of hard topics to others, any advice on things that they can do to get as good at it as you are? So the first thing I'd say about any podcast where someone who's successful is talking about their career and advice for other people is to go read the Wikipedia entry on survivor bias, right? Because I have no idea which bullets I missed. And there's an awful lot of survivor bias in formats like this. So, you know, take all advice that anyone gives on any podcast with a grain of salt. By the time you've come to a podcast, you may not realize what the key to your success was. With that said, look, I think we talked earlier about trying to put yourself in the mindset of another person, trying to exhibit some sort of intellectual empathy. I think that's really important. Practice really helps, but also, and this is especially true with programmers. I hate to say this, but as as a lifelong programmer, I'm going to throw programmers under the bus a little. Programmers are very arrogant and contemptuous of people who don't have the same skill that they do. And that is a profoundly unhelpful way to go about explaining something, right? Since you're too dumb to understand computers, let me explain the little AI program to you is not a good way to start any conversation ever, right? And so I think a a reasonable first step is get in the mindset of empathy for your audience and communicating in in their mindset. But look, also, you know, frankly, it's a bit of a performance skill, right? I used to give people the advice that work is performance art, and I mean it. There's a role that's expected of you. And so I don't know, go read some Shakespeare, take an improv class, do something like that, right? Yes, and helps a lot, which is sort of the key of improvisational comedy. And I'm a terrible comedic improviser, but understanding that approach to a conversation can really help. And then finally, I want to emphasize, and I've said it several times, if you don't understand what you're talking about, you're not going to explain it well. So, you know, don't don't baloney people. If you don't know something, say, I'm sorry, I don't know why that is that way. It's a very interesting question. Let me get back to you. 
that earns far more respect than, well, you don't understand the confabulator because it's attached to the defibrillator or whatever you just made up that you don't understand yourself. I absolutely love that advice. And I'm having a a laugh as a a recovering programmer and also having been on the receiving end of the, the kind of contentious comments that one can get. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just so important when, particularly the, the folks who who know an awful lot about things, but aren't able to, you know, to, to communicate that in an effective way to others. It's just so important for the progress of a team, but also for, for people's, you know, personal careers to, to get good at that, even if it's not their key skill set. Yeah. I mean, look, let's, let's just make an appeal to Ross self-interest. If everyone who asks you a question ends up feeling dumb, no one will talk to you and therefore you won't get promoted. Right. 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 So Paul, we're going to talk a little bit about OpenFin and your post-Goldman days, you know, your, your decision to get involved with OpenFin. But before we do that, I want to talk about a couple other really interesting initiatives that you're, you're involved with. The first one is, is Motive Partners. Can you tell us a little bit about what Motive does and, and, and then maybe a little bit about your involvement with them? Sure. Motive is a very interesting fintech investment operating and innovation platform. It started by Rob Havert, who was a founder of Capco and was at a FIS. And Rob had the idea, which was an idea that resonated very strongly with me, that your investments will be better informed if you inform them with operating professionals. And if you inform them with information about what's actually happening inside financial services organizations. And so he started a platform and I signed on to the platform very early. He was starting the platform around the same time I left Goldman and I signed on as an advisor at the beginning with a couple of goals. First of all, raise private equity funds and make investments. And we've done that. But do it with a team of individuals who are not just investment professionals, and we have some great investment professionals in the team, but who are also industry professionals, folks like Steve Daffron or myself or Blythe Masters are involved in the, in the platform now, with the goal of bringing operating expertise and operating knowledge to the investment and private equity ownership part of the life cycle. And I think we've done it very successfully. We also, at the same time, stood up an innovation arm, Motive Labs, which is a membership-based organization that uh, works with banks and organizations around the world to help them understand innovation, product launch, product development. And we have this feedback cycle between the three areas that I think is very powerful. We've had great success with the organization with our set of investments in our first fund. And you can go to our to the Motive Partners website and read all about those. Paul, you also serve on the board of Uncork, and they are doing some, some interesting things, uh, particularly around this time with COVID. Can you talk about your involvement with Uncork and, and maybe a little bit about that initiative? Sure. I, I mean, I've known Uncork for a couple of years now, since I think there were about 12 or 13 employees was when I first met the management team. And I became their independent director a little over a year ago. And Uncork, much like Motive and much like OpenFin, and we'll get to OpenFin soon enough, had a a thesis I really bought into, which is enterprise expertise combined with making things actionable and transactionable can lead to great results for customers. In Uncork's case, the problem they've cracked is, can I build data-driven enterprise applications quickly and easily and deploy them to the cloud and have them be secure and so on and so forth. It's one of these no-code, low-code promises that I'd heard many a time and approached with great skepticism until I looked under the hood and then with great enthusiasm. And the company's been very successful with their approach of building a platform that allows you to write and deploy an enterprise application in finance, insurance, and increasingly healthcare and municipalities as well. 
Uncork's particularly proud of what we did around COVID with our emergency response solutions. We started within a few days of gathering resident health information and being a backstop for 311 around COVID and very quickly turned that into the city's meal delivery system. The city delivers a large number of meals to people around the city. We've actually delivered 45 million meals to New Yorkers, to 450,000 unique households, using an application that we built in Uncork over a relatively complicated three to four day sprint. I mean, everyone worked super hard, but it's an example of if you have the capability to build an enterprise app that spans mobile, that has multiple parties, that has the data that deploys to cloud, how quickly you can do that. At the same time, with one of our partners, we wrote a PPP loan application platform that allowed banks to make more PPP loans. And this sort of response led to, I think, some other exciting stuff. This is a one of my fun facts about Uncork. The city of New York had realized that they needed a way for people to get married without going to City Hall. And so Uncork built the city's marriage license portal. Sounds like a small thing to do. We built it in a couple of days. We're now the system of record for New York City marriages. And so the work I'm super proud of, because, you know, as you well know, Mazi, I like to work with individuals who have a mindset about their community in some form. But I think the effectiveness of the thesis, which is if we can make it simpler to build these digital applications, we will build these digital applications that help people, was proven true through the crisis. Those figures you just shared, particularly about the meals, is just really fascinating and just amazing that the company was able to to step in that quickly. The time it takes now with a platform like that to to build something complex, it's just, it's mind-boggling. Something like that in years past might have taken more than a year to build. If you start with a blank screen in React, then it's going to take you a long time to get to an application on every New York City taxi driver's phone. But, you know, look, this this mutualization thesis, this idea that we can find components that factor finance differently, that's part of the thesis that uncorks, part of the thesis at Motive, but it's also part of the thesis at OpenFin. The reason that I was excited when you and I were talking about me getting involved with OpenFin was very similar. Here's this piece of work that every capital markets team will need to do that is difficult to do right, that you have done right. Let's use that to save everyone tons of time on their application delivery pipeline. Let's use that to address the fact that major banks are having their margins go down while their costs are constant. Let's use that to address the fact that really getting an application onto your desktop in a web browser isn't adequate, but getting your application onto a desktop outside a web browser is really hard. And if everyone does it, it will be really hard and really incoherent as well. So let's you know take these opportunities to do things once and well at the right level of infrastructure, whether that's your desktop operating system, as OpenFin provides, or whether that's the components that you need to build an application in a regulated industry like healthcare and finance, which is what Encore provides, or whether that's the combination of expertise and capital to build the infrastructure for financial services, which is what Motive provides. It's all kind of the same thesis that we can move where we do a piece of work for the benefit of the entire system. Paul, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, in your time post-Goldman, You've gotten involved with the initiatives we just talked about. Can you explain a little bit about your your decision making, how you, how you decide to get involved with a particular project, and maybe give folks who are at a similar point in their career a, a frame for how they might think about it? 
I think the most important thing I did was figure out not what I wanted to say yes to, but what I wanted to say no to. Right? Figuring that out at the beginning really helped a lot. As I'm sure you can imagine, coming out of Goldman after having been the co-head of the technology division and a successful career and so on and so forth, I had plenty of people calling me to do this, that, and the other. And so I think the first thing I did was get a clear idea about what I didn't want to do. One of the things I didn't want to do, by the way, was have a full-time operating role again. I've often said running 9,000 people organizations is something everyone should do once in their life, but probably not twice. And so the, uh, the, the decision about what to say no to was pretty important. That actually narrowed the field quite a lot. You know, some really wonderful organizations asked me if I wanted to come in and talk to them about being their CTO or CIO. And they were wonderful organizations where at a different point in my life, I would have been honored to be asked. But at this point in my life, it wasn't for me. And so then you sort of start thinking, well, what are the criteria that I want to use for places where I do spend time? And once you have a no rubric, I got to uh, answer about what it was that I actually missed about not being in my full-time operating role. And I found things like, much like many of the things you and I do together, Mazi, here's this particular problem that I, as an experienced leader, can't crack. Help coach me through how we're getting through that. That type of thing turned out to be super interesting. And so I started surrounding myself with a group of entrepreneurs at different levels to let me see if my brain could be useful to them. The other thing I did is I wanted to be at sort of a different point on the company life cycle and company risk scale. Right? I was more than happy to work a long time helping someone's company work and have it not work out with the opportunity on having it be a home run than I was to sort of, you know, take a short thing for a little while. And I was lucky to be in a situation where I could make that decision. And so, you know, when you approached me out at OpenFin, I saw a lot of things I liked. I saw a thesis that made sense. I saw exciting leadership team and a, a charismatic dynamic CEO, which is, which is you, uh, in case our listeners don't know. And I thought to myself, great, here's an opportunity where I could help this company do something that I think could actually be super useful to the industry. I think the last thing I added to my list was I kind of didn't want to work with people who I didn't want to, you know, talk to, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I and do. so, and so I've spent a lot of my philanthropic time on concepts around equity and diversity and social capital. And I've tried to work with organizations where, you know, that is part of the mission, right? I was impressed that OpenFin had a clear point of view about diversity on its team. I've spent plenty of time with other CEOs talking to them about intersection of philanthropy and job access. You know, Uncork is an incredibly diverse company. There's good example. You know, I don't want to go into each of the particular individual conversations I had, but, you know, making sure that there is some sort of alignment of values and alignment of kind of wanting to have fun and seeing if we can build something cool. Um, that was the last test I did. And I was lucky, incredibly lucky to be in a situation where I could make that decision. You know, most people don't get the opportunity to pick their job and I'm well aware of that. And so I feel lucky every day that I managed to fall into a situation where I could. That's terrific, Paul. And uh, really appreciate the kind words. And we're, we're thrilled that we're one of the things you're spending your, your time on. Paul, you have given me some really terrific advice over the years. And one of the, the things that you, you said to me that, that really struck a chord was the you know, focusing on things that you can control and really not worrying about the rest too much. Can you talk a little bit about that advice and, and how founders can apply it? 
Yeah, sure. So the the most concise version of this is, you know, the number of people in the world you can change is between zero and one, right? This is the sort of the the, the version of this advice I've been giving a lot lately. And I see a lot of founders who are not seeing a path to a solution to their problem because they're looking for a solution that requires activity elsewhere. If that person does this and this person does that and this person does that, then my company will be successful. It's probably not a great plan. And so I think this advice all comes down to the same thing, which is you are going to be most successful and happiest if you find a path to allow your agency to affect change in your work. And you can have teams and you can rely on other people and that's great. And I've done that many a time. I've worked with some amazing people and I've worked for some amazing people who have, who have given me a lot. Uh, I don't mean to diminish any of that, but if you're sitting there and your plan relies entirely on the action of other people and those other people are not bought into your mission, your plan's not going to work. And so, you know, there's some techniques like don't use the word should, don't use the word hope. Right? Use the word will or won't. Use the word can or can't. And those techniques allow you to really make sure that the plan you've laid out is a realistic plan. And sometimes when you do that, you realize, oh goodness, there's nothing I can do here. I have no plan. There's no piece of work I can undertake that will affect the change I need to occur. And that seems like it's a very bad thing, but it's actually a really good thing to know because then at least you're not going to do pointless work you can figure out what you'll do instead. And so, you know, continuing to appeal to agency and what you can control, I think is an important thing to keep in mind. And look, I'll layer on this again. I've said it several times, your know, concepts of survivor bias and concepts of luck. Sometimes you just get a lucky break, right? Sometimes you get a client call like I'm saying, hey, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but I'd like to order, you know, an extra 75,000 seats, please. Take those. Those are great. Celebrate them make them wonderful. But if your plan is, and I hope some client randomly calls and buys 75,000 seats, then you probably need a better plan. Well, that advice has uh, served me well, has definitely made me more effective. And and also, I would say, reduces a lot of stress that goes into worrying about all those things that really are beyond your control. Yeah. One of the senior people at Goldman used to say, no choice, no problem. And that's a sort of super extreme version of it, right? Because sometimes there is, sometimes you have no choice and there is a problem, but it focuses your mind on this idea that there's no work to be done if there's no choice you can make. Right. Paul, you spoke about diversity a little bit earlier, and I want to spend a little, little bit of time with you on that. Last week, we had Kim Trotman, who I know you know from DRW on the show. And I was speaking to her about how how we can get more women and other underrepresented minorities uh, in fintech. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and also maybe start with how you know Kim. Kim is fantastic. I look forward to every opportunity I get to work with Kim. Kim was an associate at Goldman when I was on the board of one of Goldman's portfolio companies. And thanks to her, I looked incredibly smart at every board meeting. She and I formed a great working relationship and I I loved working with her. And it's also super satisfying to have an associate who you worked with when you were an MD and a partner getting booked on a podcast before you do. And I introduced her at a conference about a year ago. And it's really great to see that success that she had because she's such a talented individual and loved working with her. And I still do enjoy it when we get to intersect. I think there's an awful lot that we can do 
to make financial services more welcoming and more inclusive. And in my philanthropy, my wife and I have this, you know, working model around social capital transfer, this idea that a you know, we have all built up this ability to do things like send someone's resume in for a job or, you know, get someone a nice tour at a university or, you know, I happen to know someone who happens to know someone who happens, you know, the, all those sorts of bits of connectivity that we have are a form of social capital that we distribute and manage particularly poorly, I think, as individuals, mostly because we don't think of it as capital. Right? And so, there's all sorts of stuff we can do, but I think for the listeners here, I would suggest a couple of thoughts to put in your head so you can begin adjusting some of what you do. And the first is think about that social capital you have as an allocatable asset. One example I often use with someone, you know, you're a person you know's nephew is starting a company and wants a $5,000 investment. A person you know's nephew is looking for a job and wants their resume sent to Goldman. Which one of those two has the higher MPV and which one of those two would you do more diligence on? And I think most people who think about it realize the resume forward probably has a higher MPV, but you would do less diligence. And so let's think a little about not the fact that you shouldn't forward a person's resume if they're the cousin of the person you know and they're great. Of course you should. Everyone's always looking for great people. But you know, what's the selection process you're using to do that? How are you helping introduce people to the workforce? How have you met folks? You know, apply that to your interview process as well, right? The canonical example is they were on my lacrosse team, so I hired them, or they liked the same Star Trek movie as I did, so I hired them. You know, look out for that and make sure you don't do that in your interview and hiring processes. And that's all forms of thinking about how social capital leads to an advantage that obscures the opportunity to be successful in your job. And if you use that social capital as an indicator, as opposed to other measures of success, you know, and some of those are very social capital correlated as well, you can start beginning to see where you may be putting bias into some of your processes. I think the other thing though, that's super important, and we've talked about this now several times on this podcast, is just some basic empathy. I'm going to give an example of a LinkedIn post I wrote, uh, at sort of, you know, I think in April or so. It was when the Twitter CEO, Jack, had said, everyone at Twitter can work at home forever. And some person who I didn't know responded, but who showed up in my feed somehow, because I don't know how the LinkedIn feed works, said, of course they should. If people can't handle work from home, you have the wrong employees. Right. And that sounds very much like a internet bravado. Well, if you can't work from home, then why are you working in an internet company? thing that you would say if you didn't have any basic empathy for people who might have just graduated from college, but their parents live in New York City public housing. Or for people who perhaps don't have a nice office room in their parents' suburban house they can go back to after they graduate. Or for people who are sharing a small apartment with four other folks because your job only pays them enough to do that in New York City. And do you really want to say, I don't want any employee who lives in New York City public housing and has just graduated with a high GPA from a university? And so, you know, I, I think if we all just sat down and thought about, again, the context of people's lives before we made decisions about the nature of our workplace, um, we could start bending the curve. Now, of course, there's a lot more than that you can do right? There's a lot of real active work you can do in recruitment and support and mentoring. And I spend some time doing that. My wife spends some time doing that. But at the very minimum, 
at the very minimum, if everyone listening to this podcast started thinking about the social capital they had as an allocatable asset, and everyone started being empathetic to lives other than the life that they assume is the quote, normal close quote life, right? Which really is code for, you know, upper middle class suburban white life. We could start to affect changes in the workplace that I think could be useful. That's such important advice. And as you know, we are, we're working hard to apply all of that advice at OpenFin in, in our hiring right now. I mean, you and I have also spoken about not just the the recruitment process, but also pay equity, you know, once once people start working at your company. So let me also say something out there, to, something to the, to the more senior people out there. The people who get to do things like sit on boards of directors or run compensation committees, which is you can affect change just by asking questions. Just by asking questions. Right. And so, you know, Mazi, you, you know this because I ask this question in every compensation committee. Have we thought about diversity and equity in that compensation process? And you give an answer that I think is a good answer. But those types of questions that you can ask, how much time is the board scheduling on diversity and inclusion? Is there going to be a metric that I can see in every board meeting? If you just ask that as a board member, the natural apparatus of organizations responding to boards will kick in and things will start changing. And so for those of us who found ourselves in a position of extreme privilege and extreme luck, like I have, and I count myself as having both, you know, both of those things, you can use that position to start affecting change simply by asking the questions, not just what's our CAC, not just what are, what's our revenue per customer, not just, you know, what's our profit margin. And those are incredibly important questions. And you have to ask those as a board director, of course, but also ask what's our recruiting plan? How does our work from home plan impact our hiring? Which people are we rewarding and which are we not? How are we thinking about inclusivity? How are we thinking about an open, successful workplace? And the companies I've affiliated with, I think are doing a good job with that. You're also involved with a number of philanthropic initiatives. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about those, and also, you know, again, how how do you how do you decide what to what to get involved with? Yeah, I mean, with those recently, I've been trying to make sure I get involved with ones that again follow this theme of equity, access, social capital. And there's a few I'm involved with. I'll highlight uh, I'll highlight one, which is a Quill.org, where I'm chair of the board. And Quill is an interesting organization because it has a very concrete goal of change the equity curve in access to critical reasoning and writing education. So you asked about being able to explain things. You asked about being able to take a complex idea and break it down into its constituent parts. A lot of that is the fact that I had an education where critical reasoning and debate and writing were an important part of it. Even though I was a scientist, I couldn't, you know, write a factual essay reasonably well. And the disparity in education around writing is substantial. Moreover, the research in education about writing shows you ways that you can begin fixing that, but it's incredibly labor intensive. So Quill takes a couple of things I really like. It takes research-driven approach to education a mission to address inequities in the education system. And then it applies on top of that statistics and artificial intelligence to give a teacher-driven tool that can help them use some of the most advanced research in how to teach writing and deliver that to students around the country for free. So far, we've had 
I don't have the latest stats, more than 2 million students do a substantive number of exercises. And our tests demonstrate that it actually improves the uh, kid's ability to write using some very simple techniques that we've known about in education research for a long time. Techniques around connecting words, techniques around compound sentences and compound ideas delivered in a platform that's teacher friendly and classroom ready. And so that's a super exciting intersection of all my interests. And I have a lot of fun there. I also work with, a, you know, my wife and I work with a bunch of organizations that help people in that sort of exit from high school to entry from first job after college period. How do you build agency? How do you get confidence in your ability to learn? How do you select college, right? We've done some work on, you know, the guidance counseling problem. We've done some work on disparities in in educational agency. We've done some work on first-generation college student access to jobs. We spent a lot of time on that. But sort of all with this theme that we'll have a better outcome for the country, better outcome from the world, actually, if we have a, a more equitable distribution of opportunity. And that starts, you know, far back on the education system and goes all the way up to, uh, all the, way up to the workforce. Those are all such great initiatives. And it says right on the the Quill homepage, it's actually 2.8 million students they've helped so far. <laughs> yeah, I, th I, th I, think, I think they put a live counter up. And when COVID occurred, because we were a, you can be teacher run or you can be parent run, we had a massive spike in people looking to it for writing enhancement tools as well. And so it's an amazing platform. You can all go use it to teach your uh, middle school kids and, and younger or older how to uh, combine sentences and write and begin to reason. Amazing. I'm going to see if I can, uh, I can get my kids on this platform. Looks super <laughs> interesting. Paul, this has been a terrific discussion. That might actually be a nice place to, to close with our kids. You do, as you've told me over the years, a lot of really cool projects with your daughter. Can you tell me about something that, that you guys have been working on recently? We're spending a lot of time on music right now. So she's high school age. And so we've been spending a reasonable amount of time on various instruments that she's learning. And I've been helping her do that. Just yesterday, I was helping her figure out how to play a more complicated song on the ukulele. Our summer is always full of little projects as well. But I would say over quarantine, an enormous amount of time on music performance, singing, and also just frankly, how to cope with this peculiar new world that we have. So we ended up when we got to the place where we've been sitting out the quarantine, not having a desk for her to do school. So she and I designed that together and then uh, I built it out in the wood shop and she helped me finish it. So things like that are also fun. That's terrific. I'm actually teaching my mom how to play the guitar. And I think the, the first thing I figured out is she has the wrong guitar. So I've, I've ordered her a new one and we're going <laughs> to, we're going we're gonna to pick up the lessons once we get back. Yeah. You know, I, I can't make that excuse because I already have too many guitars. So if she's not playing guitar, it's not because we don't have the right guitar hanging around, unfortunately. Paul, I really appreciate you making the time for us today. It's been a pleasure, as always, to speak with you. Well, Mazi, thank you very much. It's been really great. I'd like to thank Paul for joining us and you for listening. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast. Mm -hmm.